Welcome to the Guts and Glory, Singapore General Hospital Gastroenterology Podcast. My name is Dylan. And I'm Ching Han. I'm Andrew, and I'm pleased that you listeners are able to join us again in our podcast where we provide in-depth practical discussion with our local experts from Singapore General Hospital. So today, we are much blessed with uh, two guests. One of them is going to co-host the episode with me and Ching Han, which is Hao Ming, a Duke NUS student. Um, and we have another special guest with us today from an different department, the Department of Hematology in Singapore General Hospital. But before I introduce our guest speaker today, let me just uh, have a brief chat with uh, Hao Ming. So Hao Ming, um, I understand you are a student of Duke NUS, um, currently rotating into the Department of Gastro in Singapore General Hospital. right? So how has the experience been so far? Hello, Dr. On and everyone. Uh, so glad to be here. So I'm actually currently in my gastroenterology elective, and this is my first week in the liver team. And on, honestly, I think I have learned so much just during the past few days. I In the inpatient team, I got to interact with the MOs, as well as my registrar and consultant, and then to learn from them, various conditions that can be seen in the liver team, some acute, uh, some quite chronic, and know what are the basic approaches and management to all of them. And in an outpatient setting, I was able to follow up on patients with uh, cirrhosis uh, for now, and then to see how to properly manage, and then I received excellent guidance from my mentors. So it's been a good journey so far. Great. Thank you so much for that, Haoming. So um, and we now turn our ears to our guest speaker today, which is uh, Dr. Esmeralda Teo, right? So uh, again, I before I let Han introduce her, I'm always extremely uh, excited when we have uh, members of other departments joining us today. And hematology department is a, is a department that works closely with us in, in many diseases that we, we manage together. Uh, but today we're going to manage on the the most common condition that our paths intertwine, which is on the topic of anemia. So Chinghan, who do we have um, with us today and who is she exactly? Dr. Esmeralda Teo uh, was educated in the UK and she graduated from Imperial College of Medicine. She did her foundation training in the North London Deanery and her internal medicine training in Singapore General Hospital. She completed her fellowship in hematology with a special interest in acute leukemia and cancer survivorship. She was awarded the NRMC Clinician Scientist Award to investigate the interplay of synergistic mechanisms in combination chemotherapy for lymphoma and myeloma at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, United States. She has publications in several, in several peer-reviewed journals. During this time, she also completed a chaplaincy course and was awarded the Lay Chaplain of the Year Award. Dr. Teo also completed a graduate diploma in palliative care and uses that training to bring to the forefront an integrated supportive care approach in the initial management and diagnosis of leukemias. She believes in the holistic approach to the management of hematological conditions and places a strong emphasis emphasis on a multidisciplinary care, maximizing social support and integration of new evidence-based treatment to ensure that patients receive good individualized care. Right. So welcome, Esmeralda. Um, okay. So uh, just for convenience sake, we're going to call you SZ. Anyway, in SGH, that's what everyone calls you. Um, uh, it's it's a, a more affectionate way of calling you and it's much easier on the mouth too. Yes. Right? <laughs> so SZ, so uh, Yes. Hi. So hi, hi, hi. So welcome to the podcast. Um, we're gonna ask you a few questions about yourself, right? So okay. I think everyone can hear that um your accent is not a Singaporean English accent. Though, though I must say you you have 
change in the way that you have, uh, I mean, the accent has changed since you, you've came, you've come to Singapore and we've noticed that there's a bit of Lars and Mars and Lowe's creeping into the, into that Polish uh, British accent that you have. So, um, Ezzy, uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and, and what you do? Thanks, Andrew. Um, so hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the privilege of being on your um, podcast of Guts and Glory. So I'm really very happy and very excited to be talking about anemia with all of you. Um, and hello to Han and Helming. Nice to meet you on Zoom. Um, so um, yes, Andrew, uh, I, I've I lived in the UK and I moved from Singapore uh, when I was three and uh, moved back to Singapore when I was 25. So I spent predominantly a, a lot of my life in, in UK. I was educated in UK. Actually, Andrew, I met you, right, in, in UK when you were studying too. So um, your accent is also quite polished too, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> so, yeah, so I've, I've, met, I've met Esmeralda in the last millennium. That's how old we are. So yeah. that, was, that was back back then when I was doing my A-levels in the UK. So I've yeah. known her for a really long time, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, so Ezzy, so um, now that you're in Singapore, um, and in, now you work for for the Department of Hematology, right? So, um, Qinghai has mentioned a few things about the the areas of interest that you that you're involved in in, in hematology. Um, but if if someone were to ask you what what you do for a living, right? Um, what would you actually tell them? So I would tell them that um, I deal with blood cancers. Um, and mostly I, I take care of leukemia patients. My specific passion is taking care of the very young and the very old. So I have um, interest in finding better support avenues and um, looking after the geriatric acute leukemia patients and the AYA leukemia patients, the um, adolescent and young adults. So I tell them I take care of the very old, the very young um, blood cancer patients. Right. Okay. So... If, if we move away from, from things at work um, and to things uh, away from work. So what do you do in your free time when you're not busy keeping your, your family alive? Should we put it that way? <laughs> yeah, I don't really have much free time anymore. Um, but um, when I was off work for a while in maternity, I um, I got into spinning spin classes. So I thought that was really, really good. So I think that's a really good way to unwind spin classes. But ever since I started working, I think um, my hobbies are quite sedentary. Um, right now, to be honest, my hobby right now is bread making, which is quite boring, to be honest. But <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now. So I, I hear there's a TV series that you are a huge fan of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, no, I um, another thing that I like to do is try to teach my children. My children are like six, three and uh, 12, 12 months. So I um trying to teach them um, more Chinese. So I like them watch TV in Chinese. But when you get to adult movies that they're really, really into, um, I found that you can actually change the language to Chinese too. So they've watched all of Star Wars, uh, all of Star Trek. Um, and mind you, they're six and they're four, so it's a little bit violent. But anyway, Star Wars, Star Trek, and um, Mandalorian and Boba Fett, and all of those all in Chinese. So it's quite, <laughs> I don't know whether they understand it, but I'm reading the the subtitles and they're listening to Chinese Star Wars. <laughs> But you know, ever since that that dinner that we had, and, and I found out that you were doing this for your kids, I, I did the same. So me and my wife, we 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 make our kids watch Octonauts and, and Paw Patrol, everything in Mandarin now. 
So it's, yeah. uh, we're doing something similar. Yeah, uh, because uh, me as the mother cannot speak Chinese. So the mother tongue is coming from the TV. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks so much, Izzy. So, um, Chinghan, so what is the case that we have with us today? Our patient that we have today is Madam Lo Hai Bi. She's a 71-year-old Chinese female with background of diabetes, IHD, and CKD. She was admitted into the Department of Internal Medicine for a fall and a UTI. This has been treated, but while preparing for her discharge, the ward team notices that her hemoglobin levels are at um, 8 grams per deciliter. Her last hemoglobin done 5 years ago was 10. The medical officer of the team suggests that the team refer to gastroenterology for a consult, while the house officer suggests a hematological consult instead. Um, she's on long-term aspirin, and her most recent creatinine is at um, 300. I'd like to just start off by asking, how common is iron deficiency anemia in our population? Um, so, yeah, thanks for that question. So, iron deficiency, actually, there aren't very many um, published studies on iron deficiency in Singapore. The only one that we've, I found was um, iron anemia in uh, NS men. Um, which showed that the rate of anemia is about 0.5%, but that was including thalassemias. Um, but in the US, the um, recorded uh, prevalence of iron deficiency in men under 50 is 1%, and in uh, women is about 10%. Worldwide, I think um, it's much higher. So uh, the rate of iron deficiency is higher in developing countries. So they say it's about 25%. All right, so as you... And, um... We have so many of these uh, inpatients in, in the wards, right? Uh, and ha have you noticed a pattern? Is there a specific group of patients that tend to develop uh, iron deficiency anemia? I know it's a very broad um, condition, but I think in your observations, have you, have you noticed this? Yes. So I ha I've clearly believed that any patient who has, um, any man who has iron deficiency most likely has some sort of malignancy. Um, so that's what I found so far in the patients that I have been referred iron deficiency for, and I've pushed to request for CT scans, um, um, bone marrow even tests, and, and they've shown, you know, lymphomas bleeding or some sort of like uh, GI malignancy that's bleeding. So I'm always very, have very high alert for um, men who have got iron deficiency. In women who are iron deficiency is almost invariably because of a heavy menses. So, so I see if for for the cases that you mentioned about malignancies, um, is this just um GI malignancies in general or any malignancies, any solid organ or even non-solid organ um cancers? Um, so I always first line as um if in patients who are referred to me for iron deficiency, if they're men, I always do a CT scan. Um and picked up quite a few lymphomas. Um, that have presented with anemia um, and have some sort of GI bleeding. So that's mainly one of the things that are that, that present quite early. Um, but then if the CT scans are clear and there's no obvious kind of lymphadenopathy, um, then we would push for scopes. Um, and those predominantly do find some sort of malignancy in the colon or in the upper, upper GI tract, most likely in colon, yeah. Uh, Dr. Theo, I have a question. Uh, sometimes uh, I also hear this uh, from uh, from some of my colleagues and classmates. They wonder what is the difference between this term called absolute iron deficiency and functional iron deficiency? 
Yeah, I think that's actually, this is actually a very, very good question. Um, and I think that, um, I think the way that you can understand those two terms is uh, trying to understand the cause. So absolute iron deficiency essentially means that there is absolutely no iron. So um, either reduced iron from decreased intake, decreased absorption or blood loss, but functional iron deficiency means that there is iron in the body, iron, uh, free iron or iron stores are high, iron, the ferritin is high, but that iron is not incorporated into the red blood cells, usually because of a decrease of erythropoietin, like in chronic renal failure, because the kidneys make uh, EPO. So, um, so the iron is there, but it's not getting into um, the red blood cells to be functional. Can you explain to the listeners two things? Um, firstly, what is the physiology of iron absorption? And secondly, what is the body's homeostatic response to a low hemoglobin? Okay, I think those are really very difficult questions maybe to say on a podcast. But for me, I think this is the most interesting um, uh, part of anemia and iron deficiency is iron metabolism because it just shows how smart the body is. But maybe we can think of it or imagine it um, uh, from when we start taking or eating iron. Okay, so when we eat iron or we take it from vegetables, vegetable at at a uh, vegetable state, the iron is a, as its ferric state, which is the Fe three plus. So when we eat it, it goes into our mouth and then it goes into our stomach. And when it goes to our stomach, it gets reduced by the hydrochloric acid. And then it uh, changes into its uh, Fe2 plus uh, ferrous state. Um, after that, um, the Fe2 plus ferrous state then passes into the duodenum. And at the duodenum, it goes into the enterocyte. And this is when it gets really exciting. Well, for me, it gets quite exciting. In the enterocyte, there is a checkpoint mechanism. Um, so when, if the, the iron, uh, so if the hemoglobin is low in the body, then this special protein gets pr produced called IRE or iron response elements. And these proteins then actually modulate post-transcriptionally at an mRNA level to reduce the production of ferritin, which is the storage protein or ferroportin, which transports protein from the duodenum um, lumen into the bloodstream. And therefore, it actually represses the storage or transportation or absorption of iron. However, if there is a lot of iron and um, the hemoglobin level is high, then the IRE proteins, these iron response elements proteins actually come off. Translation of the storage proteins are activated. And so therefore, you have increased ferroportin, increased, um, uh, uh, increased ferritin, and you can have increased storage of the iron. To mobilize um, the iron, the, it is actually needs to be oxidized back into its Fe3 plus ferric state inside the enterocyte. And then it passes through the mucosa through the ferroportin and it gets picked up by transferrin in the bloodstream. Um, how it's related to erythropoietin is that actually erythropoietin um, increases transferrin and therefore pushes the iron to, to, to make more red blood cells. And how it's related to hepcidin is that in inflammation, hepcidin increases, which is actually like an anti-erythropoietin hormone. So um, in inflammation, hepcidin will be high and will degrade the ferroportin at the enterocyte. So the iron is not absorbed. Right. Th thanks so much for that. I mean, it's difficult to visualize, I, I think, um, 
and unless we have a physiology uh, diagram right in front of us, but I think you did a wonderful job in explaining that to us. So I'm just wondering, you know, if um, I've, I've noticed that patients who are vegetarians, for example, no matter how much um, iron-rich vegetables they eat, they're not going to be the same as a, as a as someone who takes meat. Uh, so is there a difference in, in, in the way iron exists in, inside uh, vegetables and, and meat? I'm not sure whether there's, I, there's definitely a difference because I think if you're taking meat, um, you're actually, especially red meat, you're eating it in its kind of um, FE2 plus state um, in the red meat. So, and, and, and you're eating the hemoglobin. Um, so I think that is more easily and quickly absorbed. But in plant-based or vegetable-based, um, it's not as um, easily absorbed. Maybe it's because it's more in its FE3 plus state. Right. So what, what do you advise patients usually? I mean, in terms of diet, what, what's the your go-to uh, iron-rich foods? Um, I, I just tell them, to, uh, if they're able to take meat, I would just tell them to take red meat. Um, most of the people, it's Chinese population, they don't eat beef. And then uh, the Muslim population, they don't eat pork. So it's usually either be, you know, uh, beef, pork, mutton uh, as the red meat. Um, vegetables, I tell them to take dark green vegetables, but I don't tell them to take those um, for, for the iron content. Uh, but the, the, the um, non-heme-based um, plant foods that have higher iron is probably the beans and the lentils. Referring back to the case, um, would like to ask Dr. Teo, when when is a drop in hemoglobin significant? Because you know sometimes there are some fluctuations in the blood test. Um, because over here it dropped by two grams over the past five years, and we're not really sure how fast it really dropped over time. I see. So I think there are some um guidelines, SGH guidelines, to note that if there is um a drop in HB. Uh, from baseline of more than two grams, it is significant enough to be evaluated, um, even though it's over a longer period than you expect. So I would say that with um, hemoglobin baseline of 10, which has dropped to eight, um, this does warrant investigation as to the cause. But whether it is likely to be a chronic iron deficiency or some sort of other cause, that remains still uh, to be investigated. So we evaluate the full uh, blood count of the patient and um, she has a hemoglobin of 8 but it also shows a MCV of 75. The MCH is 30. Serum iron is 5. Total iron binding capacity is 30. Transferrin saturation is 28% and ferritin was 300. A digital rectal examination was performed and there was no blood, uh, there was no overt signs of bleeding. Um, so we Maybe, um, Dr. Teo, can you guide us through in a stepwise fashion how to integrate a full blood count and iron studies? And um, then the golden question would be, how do I diagnose uh, iron deficiency anemia? Okay, so I think that that is definitely the golden question. And surprisingly, it's actually quite an easy question to answer. Um, so I'm going to give you like a story so that you can understand what all, each of these um, terms are and then maybe you won't forget. But essentially, the first thing we do, step one, is to look at the um, the iron, the, 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 the RBC indices. So the patient obviously does have anemia with the HB of 8 and the, it is uh, microcytic hypochromic um, with the MCV of 75 um, and the MCH is 
borderline low, but normal within normal range of 30. Then afterwards, now to understand the iron panel. Um, so imagine you're on holiday and the iron is a passenger. The transferring are cars, okay? TIBC are the number of seats in a car, okay? The number of seats in a car. Transferring saturation is the percentage of the seats that are taken up, okay? And ferritin are okay, hotels, for example, for storage. So essentially what happens if you if you were iron deficient is that the number of, I mean, the, the iron would be low, so that the passengers would be low, right? Um, so to get as much iron as possible to the relevant places, the body then tries to increase the cars, right? To increase the transferrin. So the transferrin proteins start to go up. And as a result of the transferrin proteins going up, the TIBC, which is like equivalent to the number of seats in the car, will go up. So the TIBC would increase. But because the iron is low, the percentage of those seats taken up, i.e. the transferrin saturation, is low, okay? And um, the ferritin, uh, the, 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 uh, the number of um, iron that actually ends up in the hotel rooms <laughs> in the ferritin is actually low. So that's the picture of iron deficiency. Um, so in terms of numbers, um, we can think of it as iron deficiency if the... Um, the transferrin saturation is um, less than about 15%. Uh, the ferritin level is about less than 50 and the TIBC is high. Okay, so um, as you, obviously this is coming from a GI perspective because um, it's, a, it's a GI podcast, right? So as you know, GI physicians are, are plumbers. We are, we are one-dimensional one in the way we think about the anemia. Um, but so so often we we look at an, at anemia trying to make sure it's not iron deficiency because we don't want to open up a um, a set of investigations that's unnecessary. So um, is it safe to say that if if um if the patient is not iron deficient, uh, therefore it's unlikely that they have a a GI source of bleeding, or is it possible that perhaps the either the anemia or, or the iron deficiency comes first and and the other. Uh, and something else comes later. I mean, what, what's what's your thoughts on, on, on this um, difficult topic for us, at least? Yeah, so I thank you for that question. I um I think that's a really, really important question because I have many patients, actually, who have come to me with anemia and all the iron panels. Um, I'm looking, uh, you know, um, on hindsight, to be honest, but all those iron panels were all normal. Okay, so there wasn't really very much evidence specifically of iron deficiency causing that anemia, um, the patient then underwent scopes. And because people were really quite keen to work out the cause for the anemia, had actually multiple scopes and multiple GI evaluations, but the patient never had iron deficiency anemia. And it turns out that there are much more sinister causes of anemia that can present quite chronically. So I think from your point of view, from a gastro point of view, um, if um, you... Um, have a good understanding. I think all all um, medical or surgical staff should have a good understanding of the iron panel. And if you are quite quite sure that the patient does not have iron deficiency, um, then a hematology consult is warranted because they usually can have something more sinister like myelomas, lymphomas even, um, and acutely can have leukemias as well. 
Dr. Teo, thank you for that. And then uh, a question that I have regarding uh, in general about uh, hematological investigation is often of the time we'll start out with a very basic but important test, the uh, peripheral blood film. So in iron deficiency, usually what kind of things will we see in the peripheral blood film? So I think that um, you will definitely see um, a, normal a microcytic hypochronic anemia. So I think as medical students, um, you're taught from young to be able to kind of um, uh, categorize anemia into microcytic, normocytic, and macrocytic. So um, we would be dealing specifically in iron deficiencies and iron deficiency anemias with microcytic um, hypochromic anemia. Um, and the peripheral blood films will show these very, very small microcytes, very pale red blood cells. There might be even fragment cells, pencil cells, and lots of variation in the size and the shape, or what we call anisocytosis. Um, and so therefore you will see like lots of different sizes of the red cells. Um, surprisingly also, you can have normochromic, normocytic anemia, but when you go look at the film, you get two populations of red cells, one small and one big. And you can see that they, they, they look very different. So, um, so that's just a, a clue that we cannot always use um, the full blood count to be able to um, raise the suspicion of iron deficiency. But, if, but you can actually use the blood film to give you ideas that uh, there could be multiple deficiencies on board. So that's why, and I think everyone does that already. When you do an our first um, do a screening of anemia, you should always do uh, iron plus B12 and folate. Right. So, so as you just want to ask a um, um, slightly different question. So um, anemia of inflammation, right? So um, it's one of those things that I feel bad diagnosing someone with, with because uh, it, it's almost as if I... I do it because I have no other explanation to, as to what's going on. And sometimes we, we use it uh, if, from a GI perspective. We, 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 we want it to be the case because we really don't want to do a scope on someone who's high risk. And we're trying to find ways to justify the existence of inflammation. So I'm not sure whether we're doing it the right way because we see a patient with congestive cardiac failure, maybe chronic kidney disease, and then they have this anemia, which is nomochromic, nomocytic, and that's what we want to call it. We want to call it the anemia of inflammation. So how do we wrap our heads around this? Is Does this even exist? Or is it uh, like one of these uh, Lachnish monsters that, that, that hangs around in many conditions? Um, yeah, so this is a, a diagnosis of exclusion. Actually, as a hematologist, this is the best anemia for me to have because of anyone to have because um, it's the easiest to treat and it's the quickest to respond. Um, so we rule that in or rule that out early uh, so that we can start treatment faster. Um, so essentially, um, if it is normochromic, normocytic, and the iron panel does not show any evidence of, of iron deficiency, i.e. like the ferritin is high, the TIBC is low, the transfer saturation is uh, high or normal, um, then, um, then, then it, we will would probably like to say that it is anemia chronic disease. And the first thing we would do is quickly to start treatment. So we start giving erythropoietin because it's the easiest. Um, so you give, you know, um, weekly 4,000 units uh, for about five to 10 doses. And the anemia improves very quickly. Like within 
two, three weeks, then the anemia starts to improve. And if the anemia improves with the initiation of Recomon, then we can quite safely say that uh, the patient has anemia of chronic disease. Um, but um, if there is no improvement in the anemia, um, then, then it's something else that we probably need to investigate further. So either um, we hematologists will probably um, go back to the gastro and request for scopes. That's usually what we do, or we will just look for another cause. So I think if you were to say that it was anemia of chronic disease um, from a gastro point of view, um, then then wouldn't nothing would stop you really from starting the recommend first and seeing that if the anemia improves, and that should happen within about two to three weeks. Okay, I guess this is a related um, question. Um, how do we interpret ferritin levels in patients with chronic inflammation such as CKD? Because I think you did mention that um, anemia of inflammation, we, we can start giving them some recommend um, erythropoietin and then we see whether there's a response um, to the medications. But we also know that by giving recommend, um, it the response only comes by when the patient already has uh, replete iron stores. So how then do we tell um, and how do we interpret ferritin in, in this context? Yeah, so this is a question that's actually really difficult to answer because the tests that are available um, are only available on trial basis to fully kind of biochemically prove that a patient who has got what we call functional iron deficiency, i.e. decreased erythropoietin, but normal and high iron stores truly has not got uh, iron deficiency, i.e. does the iron stores and the ferritin being high really mean that the patient is iron replete? Um, and that that's a, that's actually a difficult question to, to, to kind of interpret. But um, academically, um, we have um, this test called... Um, reticulocyte hemoglobin, um, which hematologists can ask for the lab to do specifically. And this reticulocyte hemoglobin actually gives us a reflection of the amount of iron that's available for production of red blood cells in the bone marrow itself. So if the patient had, for example, chronic kidney disease and the ferritin was 300, um, and a hematologist was still quite convinced that the patient still had iron deficiency, then uh, we would request for this reticulocyte hemoglobin level. And if the reticulocyte hemoglobin was more than 28, then, um, then we would say that the patient does, it does not have uh, an absolute iron deficiency. But if the uh, reticulocyte, reticulocyte hemoglobin was less than 28, then we would say that the patient may have concurrent iron of absolute iron deficiency and functional iron defici deficiency. Um, so in, in those cases, then um, when they have got both functional and absolute iron deficiency, we would uh, actually request for them to have scopes to rule out bleeding. Um, if the patient had the functional iron defi deficiency, but the, the reticulocyte hemoglobin was high, um, then we would probably push for them to have Recomon plus a little bit of iron as well. Okay, then uh, just a few more questions about the 
other parts of the full blood count. Um, so some we we sometimes ask for reticulocyte count, and um, the RDW, the red cell distribution width, is also reported, um, and also serum transferrin. So we wanted to ask for some polls on some of these commonly used blood tests, uh, and when do we use them? Um, and we also noticed in the literature there's um this talk about soluble transferrin receptor, but we don't seem to have this on our uh, blood test. Yes, so I think that uh, reticulocyte index and um, retic RDW, these are some of um, the uh, tests that we kind of overlook when we go through a full blood count, maybe just too many numbers, um, too many parameters. But actually, hematologists, we actually force ourselves to have a look at some of these parameters because it gives us a big clue about the cause for the anemia. Um, and so we know which next investigation to hone in on. So a reticular site count is my favorite because it gives us a, me a very, very good idea about the um, bone marrow production um, and whether the response of the bone marrow is uh, adequate. So i.e. if the anemia is quite fast and uh, the cause of the anemia, for example, is a, a bleed, um, the bone marrow, there's nothing wrong with a patient's bone marrow the bone marrow will automatically kind of respond by increasing the production of reticulocytes to compensate for the blood loss. So that's a really good sign for me that the cause for the anemia is not hematological, it's not from because of the bone marrow. Um, just like Andrew, we try to find reasons not to do bone marrow tests, <laughs> mainly because it's painful, because we actually quite like doing bone marrow tests. Um, but so we find reasons not to do it. So if the reticular site count is high, then um, it is most likely to be some sort of loss, blood loss or uh, peripheral destruction. RDW is a good way for us to give an idea about the variety on the size of the cells. So as I said, with iron deficiency, um, the red cell distribution width, which is mainly the width or the diameter of each red cell, uh, will be very varied. Like you've got pencil cells and you've got fragments and then you've got small cells. So they all are different sizes. So the RDW will be high. Whereas if you have microcytic hyperchromic anemia, um, from for example, thalassemia, um, you won't have that variety in the size of the cells. The cells are more uniform. So the RDW will be um, quite normal. Um, in regards to soluble transferring receptors, um, it's actually quite a good test. The reason why it's good is because people are using it to, um, to see whether the patient has got uh, you know, um, anemia of chronic disease as the transferring receptors don't increase um, in anemia chronic disease like uh, like ferritin does as it is not an acute phase reactant. So it's a good way to differentiate between um, infection or inflammation versus iron deficiency. Um, but the reason why we don't use it in SGH is um, because we find that the iron panel already in and of itself is quite good at picking up iron deficiency. It's just an issue about um, its interpretation. So we think that like iron panel is quite good already. So when is a bone marrow needed and uh, what do we actually look for in a bone marrow study? I think that's a, actually a very good question because um, not all anemias are iron deficient. So uh, first we, uh, we look at the uh, reticular site 
uh, count. So if the reticulocyte count is actually low, um, the patient's anemia is quite significant, then you can actually um, calculate the reticulocyte ind index to see whether the bone marrow has adequately responded to the anemia by increasing reticulocytes. But if that's the case, and um, the, the, the bone marrow response is actually reduced, okay, then I actually want to bring up some red flag anemias or some clues to look for to see, uh, give us an idea about when an anemia is not iron deficient. So, um, so if there are other cell lines that are low, like for example, the white cells are low, platelets are low, that's a red flag um, and the patient could have myelodysplastic syndrome. Um, if there's anemia, but it's associated with some abnormal cells, especially blasts, promyelocytes, or any abnormal cells in the peripheral blood, then we need to really get the hematologist in early to rule out leukemias or lymphoma, lymphomas. If the total protein is high, which is one big sign um, from, because everyone does LFT, so you can see that quite quickly, um, then the anemia is secondary to myeloma. So uh, that again needs a hematologist to see early. Um, bilirubin high, I think that gets picked up quite quickly and that's uh, anemia secondary to hemolysis. Um, reticulocyte being low, as I said, um, that's a bone marrow cause and aplastic anemia, pure red cell aplasia, all are bone marrow causes for anemia. And uh, lastly, uh, if the patient has a big spleen that's unexplained uh, and also anemia, then um, hematologist also needs to see to rule out myelofibrosis. So these are just some of the red flag anemias that um, and some clues to as to what the causes of these anemias are. We'll move on to the next part of the case. Um, the patient underwent bidirectional endoscopy that did not reveal any causes of bleeding. The provisional diagnosis is that of anemia secondary to a chronic kidney disease. Since the team is planning for discharge, they are discussing on whether we should give the patient parenteral iron to bring up the iron levels and boost the hemoglobin. Um, so parental versus um, enteral nutrition, which is better? Definitely um, parenteral is faster. So um, if you give um, IV iron, um, then uh, you expect there to be um, improvement in the um, hemoglobin within about two to three weeks. Um, but the problem with that is that it's IV preparation um, and itself has got quite a lot of side effects. The most common is anaphylaxis, which is obviously quite scary. Um, and electrolyte abnormalities that we don't routinely check. Um, so that can cause um, cardiac or palpitations or, um, yeah. So, and the third thing that are associated with IV iron because of the iron load um, is infection risk. So if the patient um, can, can have enteral nutrition um, long-term, that is probably the better option. So as you just want to ask a, a practical question, so from a, from a GI point of view, right, um, we've, we've had many of these patients with um, chronic anemias and they come in with sudden drops and then we, we feel like we're chasing gremlins, you know, we go in and scope and then we're trying to hunt for this 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 uh, bleeding lesion and we can never find it. And then the patient's hemoglobin improves and then they drop again, they have another malignant episode, we go in again and we, try, and we, and we keep we end up in this cycle of, of chasing something which we're not sure what it is. And so one of the things that we tell ourselves, is if the patient responds to an oral preparation of uh, of iron, so if the hemoglobin maintains a, at a good level with uh, with some iron, is then perhaps it's not necessary for me to find and treat this, this uh, whatever is bleeding. So 
I'm not sure if that's a, a sensible way of doing things, but it seems to be a common um, way of managing some of these patients. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, actually, um, Andrew, I completely agree. I do have some of these patients as well um, who have been referred to me for chronic iron deficiency and the patient truly has got iron deficiency and a uh, patient truly also has got a melina. So um, then the question is, you know, how far do we really want to push doing these investigations, these OGDs, colonoscopies and, um, and, and enterographies and things. And they've had so many uh, GI evaluations done that they're actually quite sick of it. Um, and therefore then they get referred to us for, to decide what to do. And in my practice so far, um, I've done exactly what you said, but obviously because I can't do scopes, but I just leave them alone and I just give them iron and hope for the best. And, so, you know, slowly and surely, whatever was bleeding, after a while, it just stops bleeding. <laughs> and then the hemoglobin, um, you know, it's, it's low and maintains low for a while. Keep it, we keep it above 10. And hopefully, um, and then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, it just starts rising and it just becomes normal. And then we just we just tell them, actually, you did have some bleeding. We don't know where it is. For some reason, it stopped. And now you're fine. And now you can get discharged. So I think it's probably after doing so many scopes, you know, maybe it is time to kind of call it quits for some of these patients and then just let time heal whatever is bleeding and just support with iron. In our formulary, there are multiple um, oral iron supplementation uh, available. So we, we noticed that some preparations have a bracket within the name that says elemental. Um, I'd like to just ask Dr. Teo what that actually means. So I also uh, had to go and clarify with pharmacy as well about the different formulations and the elemental iron contents and found out that actually the the, the milligrams that is written um, for each iron preparation is either the, the iron compound or the amount of elemental iron that the preparation has. For example, Sangobion, um, Sangobion 1 tablet is ferrous gluconate and ferrous and it's 250 milligrams of ferrous gluconate, but of which only 30 grams is elemental iron. So, so so I think what they were trying to do really is to delineate the actual quantity of the actual iron in each compound. So some of these compounds are in 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 um in a compound form, and some of them are actually um just tell you the actual amount of iron in it. So um in, in terms of our oral preparations, Sangobion has is 250 milligrams, but it only has 30 mg of elemental iron compared to uh, polymaltose. Polymaltose tablet, even though it says it's 100 mg, you would theoretically think that it's less than Sangobion, but it's actually 100 mg of elemental iron. So the amount of iron in polymaltose is higher than Sangobion. Dr. Tio, another question that I have is uh, usually, for example, in patients with uh, CKD, right, they usually have this normal acidic, uh, normal chromic anemia, and then we're trying to supplement them with uh, medications such as Recomon. So when do we usually see the rise in uh, hemoglobin after, for example, we give these kind of interventions? And then for like these, these kind of chronic conditions, what is uh, considered an appropriate rise after we give the medications? Uh, okay, so um, in regards to giving a recommend, um, usually I would always recommend when you start 
are giving recommend to give it together with the iron uh, because you don't know because the patient has got what looks like functional iron deficiency you don't know whether there's also a, a, a actual absolute iron deficiency underlying it as well so what i do is i always start the patient with recommend and iron together um so we usually recommend the hemoglobin level should increase within like two or three weeks because we're giving weekly doses. So two or three weeks, there will be an, a rise in the in hemoglobin. With regards to giving IV iron preparations, um, that actually takes longer because of the production of the actual production of the, the, the utilization of the iron and the production of the red blood cells. So um, we would expect there to be some rise in the hemoglobin after about two months. Um, after IV preparation and with oral preparation because uh, it, it, you're giving incrementally um, less each time um, accumulative there should be a rise in hemoglobin usually about three four months I give about three months um, and to reach normal in about four months or so right so as you think thanks for that so um uh, in the literature, at least in the GI literature, recently there's been this um, practice that, we've, that has been published about discharging patients um, with a GI bleed. And before that, you you give them some IV iron preparations just to give the body a big boost in, in making their red blood cells again. Uh, I'm not sure whether that is the, the way forward, but um, based on, on your timeline of two months, that seems to be a, about the right uh, time for us to see the patient, wouldn't it? I mean, if we if the patient has a GIB and we think it's settled, but the HB has dropped as low as seven, and we want it to come back up uh, slowly over time, so we just give a boost of a parenteral iron before they go home. Or, or, or do you think that's not a advisable thing to do? Because huh? we we just we we feel a bit insecure sometimes looking at the HB and it's, it's so low, and then we, we we know the bleeding has stopped, but we we wonder whether it's it's too low for daily functioning. Yeah, um, so I think that if we wanted to have the hemoglobin go up faster, then a blood transfusion is probably the one to give uh, to see the, an improvement in the hemoglobin. I wouldn't discharge a patient unless the hemoglobin was probably more than eight or maybe. Um, so, uh, so especially about, and probably higher level, like for example, nine, if the patient has got ischemic heart disease or has some history of heart disease. So I'd probably transfuse the patient up first before discharge and then consider giving a boost of iron as well um again a hematology can help with that because obviously gastro uh, wouldn't be able to organize outpatient blood transfusions um, but hematology can so we'd be quite happy to be able to help in monitoring the blood uh, requirement as outpatient and giving that transfusion as outpatient as necessary um, i do agree with the idea and i do like the idea of giving the IV iron before the patient is um, is is discharged. The only problem with that, though, is sometimes um, we have had some problems with um, patients becoming very having very severe electrolyte disturbances or abnormalities after giving an IV preparation of iron. And some studies have shown that the reason for, for example, low phosphate, low magnesium. Um, after giving iron is actually some sort of refeeding syndrome because the patient was severely malnourished beforehand. And that might be one of the reasons why the patient was iron deficient in the first place. 
So if the patient was, it was obvious that the iron deficient was C was secondary to a bleed, then I think the any IV iron preparation is probably quite good. But if the iron deficiency was actually because of some sort of malnutrition or malnourished state, then um, the, 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 the severe, like the boost of iron actually causes them to go into refeeding syndrome and causes their phosphate to be ridiculously low. In um, which case then um, there is now a new preparation called monofer, um, which has uh, supposedly has lower risk of refeeding syndrome, um, but it's really expensive at this point in time. So that's uh, a, an idea to be given to um, those patients who are malnourished. Uh, thank you, Dr. Theo. We have gone through a lot in this episode. Um, we've talked about the basic science and physiology about iron absorption. Uh, and we've also talked about how to interpret a full blood count and an iron panel. Um, also talked a little bit about the management of iron deficiency anemia. We would like to ask Dr. Theo just to share with our listeners three take-home points when dealing with anemia. Okay, um, so first one I think um, is to um, try to differentiate between anemia chronic disease or, or an iron deficiency. So that's by doing the three-step thing. The first step is to look at the size of the red cell. Second step is to look at the transferrin saturation. If it's less than 15%, then it is um, iron deficiency anemia. Then to uh, look at the ferritin, and if the ferritin is low, less than 50, then it's in, you have to investigate for iron def, uh, absolute iron deficiency anemia. But if it's more than 50, then you rule out other causes, like, for example, um, uh, chronic renal failure to give uh, erythropoietin. Then the red flag anemias that I brought up, um, so MDS, the, the cytopenias, the protein, looking for protein, uh, the, the blasts in the peripheral blood, spenomegaly, and um, to look for the bilirubin being high uh, as other causes of anemia. Um, so those, those are the, the take-home points for dealing with anemia. Sorry, one more thing is um, if you do have any questions or you do want to have some help in terms of trying to understand the cause of anemia, I think hematologists, I speak on behalf of them um, to refer to us early. Um, so because some of these anemias actually might be more sinister than you think and waiting to do scopes uh, might actually be taking time away from actually investigating them uh, faster. So we don't mind kind of being a second opinion faster to review those cases. So please go ahead and uh, call us, <laughs> says me. <laughs> yes, yes, so we're we we going to take up that offer from, from you. <laughs> you. You get a sudden avalanche of referrals coming to your department. Right, as long so... as they're not iron deficiency, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> right. Okay, so I'd like to thank um, Azif for coming on to our show and provi providing us with a lot of insight into this topic of iron deficiency anemia. So this is a useful episode, I think, for anyone working on the ground because we, we will be seeing these patients uh, with uh, iron deficiency anemia. Often, if you're working in internal medicine, almost every patient, it seems, has iron deficiency or at least anemia. And so knowing what to do with, with this common blood test result um, is actually a good step. Right. So I hope all the listeners have enjoyed the conversation and learned as much as we did. Please take a look at our Padlet website. If you assess our landing page, if you just Google Linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E, -E, and then you type Guts and Glory, it should appear as one of the first set of results that you see. So within this website, you can find show notes, infographics, and reference articles that are uh, important for the topic that we discuss. Okay, so we are honored that uh, we are part of your learning journey. 
also to Hao Ming. Thank you so much for co-hosting this uh, episode with us. So until next time, take care, everyone, and stay safe.